I think once again, Jim gets the gold medal for scripture reading. <laughs> he had the, uh, the marathon edition this time. I don't, remember, I don't know if you remember when we were doing uh, Genesis, he got uh, some of the genealogies. <laughs> and he nailed them. He got them all right. So that was really great. Uh, we want to invite our children to Children's Church. If you're interested in going, your teacher will meet you in the back in age-appropriate setting for uh, hearing the word of the Lord. Uh, as for us, let's, uh, let's begin this time with prayer. Lord, your word is magnificent. Um, it is a recorded history of what you've said to us, and we don't deserve it, Lord. You didn't have to tell us these things, but you chose to, and we're, we're grateful. Lord, as we look at this teaching of Jesus now, it's filled with many confusing and troubling things. And so, Holy Spirit, we need you to come and open our eyes and our hearts to see and understand what it is that you have to say to us this morning. And Lord, that includes me. I'm not exempt from that simply because I'm standing in the front. Uh, help us to see and understand your word, to hear from it how we are to trust you more. And Lord, um, incline our hearts to, to faith. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So this is a big chunk. And I realize it's kind of a big chunk. But really, it is one teaching. It, it kind of all fits together. So as I struggled to take it apart and break it into two or three sermons, it just refused to budge. It was, it was content to be a large piece, and so um, that's how we're going to approach it. What the theme of this section really is, though, is right at the heart of it, right in the middle of it. It says, Jesus tells us, this is your opportunity to witness. So what we're hearing about here may be kind of scary and confusing, but ultimately it's about our opportunity to witness. And so what he's going to talk about are three things. He's going to talk about the fall of Jerusalem. He's going to talk about the time until he returns, and then he's going to speak about the, his return at the end. Now, when Jesus teaches here, he doesn't do it in a chronological order. He doesn't do it in the order I just outlined. Uh, there are things that are jumbled up. They go back and forth between them. Why does he do that? Well, because Jesus, first and foremost, isn't interested in our chronology. He's speaking like a pastor to his people. And so he's addressing their concerns. And so when he addresses it, he weaves it back and forth between uh, his return and the fall of Jerusalem and the time between because he's, he's doing it on that theme of, of how to comfort us, how to prepare us for that. Um, and in his audience, that first century, that probably would have worked because they didn't often think chronologically. They didn't have wristwatches. Uh, wristwatches ruined us. <laughs> Actually, they let us conquer the world because now we could navigate, but it, it divided up our lives into time and, and put things in chronological order. And so in the West, that's how we largely think is in chronological order. Uh, so I'm going to take some liberty with the text that I never do, and I've always said don't ever do this, and now I'm going to do it. So you can write on one of the name tags out there, hypocrite, and stick it on my back. What I'm going to do is I'm going to order, I'm going to skip around a little bit in Jesus' discussion here and group it under these three headings. The fall of Jerusalem, till Jesus returns, and then Jesus' return. And the reason I'm going to do that is because we, we just are who we are. We're Westerners. We think in chronological terms. It'll be easier, I think, for us to process all of this if we do it in, in a chronology. Um, so if you'll forgive me, that, that's how we're going to do it. It won't mix it up too much. There's just a couple of pieces that we'll have to move, but it won't be too bad, I promise. It won't be so jarring. So the first thing that happens, what prompts this, this lengthy discussion by Jesus is it says, while some were speaking of the temple. So you'll remember chapter 20 all took place in the temple. There were three run-ins with Pharisees and scribes and, and, um, and um, Sadducees at the temple. And it all took place right there. Jesus was teaching there, and it all took place. So that may have been over the course of days. It may have been a couple of different times. But the way Luke paints it for us is he draws it all together, and he has the stage set. It's like a play, right? You can't change the scenes every three minutes in a play. So he sets the stage in the temple, and he just brings these stories together. Now they're beginning to leave the temple as they're heading out. And as they're leaving, some people were speaking of the temple. Makes sense. They're there, and they look around, and isn't this amazing? Look at this place, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. They're looking at the temple and just saying, it's just the most amazing building ever built. It's, it's incredible. It's plated with gold. It's got gemstones etched into it. It's this magnificent building. And Jesus says, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left one stone upon another stone that will not be thrown down. That must have been alarming. That must have just jarred their teeth. Because they're looking at this building, this, this 
huge edifice and going, there's no way this could be taken down. It's impossible. It's too magnificent. It's too huge. And, and really, the temple in that first century, it's called Second Temple Judaism. It's from a 100-year period up until it was destroyed in about 70 AD. That's about Second Temple Judaism. Um, it really was marked by the, the, the temple. Herod the Great began rebuilding this temple around 19 BC, so 19 years before Christ, and he finished in 64 AD, just a short period before it got torn down. <laughs> so that didn't last. But it had been worked on for a long time. When Herod put a new foundation in, this is Herod the Great, when he put in the new foundation, he doubled the area of the temple. It grew to this immense size. The outer court, the court of the Gentiles, was huge. And it was just magnificent. There, this was not something that the Jews noticed only. There was a Roman historian named Tacitus who wrote about the history of the Jews. He was kind of, kind of explaining who the Jews were. Some of his explanations were a little fanciful, but... He's explaining to his audience what Judea is like, and this is what he said. Much of Judea is thickly studded with villages, and the Jews have towns as well. Their capital is Jerusalem. Here stood their temple with its boundless riches. So this temple stood right in the middle of Jerusalem. It was, a, it was the identity of who they were as Jewish people. It was the heart of their, their religion. And it was magnificent. It really was something. So when these people are talking to Jesus about how great the building was, they weren't making it up. It, it was really true. Now, if, if sometimes I use shorthand, I say the Jews at that time did this. That would be like saying evangelicals at this time do this. The, the crowd is too big. It's too varied. It's hard to say that all evangelicals do this one thing. Um, same thing with, with the Jews at this time. It's hard to pin down and say exactly what the Jews did because there were different approaches. There were some who um, wanted nothing to do with the temple or with Jerusalem. They felt it was corrupt, that the system had been you know, utterly whitewashed, and so they just had nothing to do with it. There were other Jews who thought, yeah, temple's great. That's really nice, but we can build anyone we want. So they had temples in other places, so it wasn't so central to them. But there was a large contingent of the Jewish people who thought of Jerusalem as their home and, and the temple as the center of their worship one Jewish historian said Jews in the late Second Temple period considered Jerusalem and its temple to lie at the physical and spiritual core of their religious identities. And you can tell this was a large amount of people because what happened at Pentecost? What happens at, at Passover? Tons of people from all over the world would stream into Jerusalem. This for them was not something they could dismiss. So the, the, I, I think, if I'm reading history correctly, the majority of the Jews saw Jerusalem as their, the core of their religious identity. And so that's when they're leaving, they look at Jesus and say, check out this building. Isn't it magnificent? And Jesus warns them, look, not one stone will be left on another. It's going to get scraped clean. So what's happening there? Um, what he's telling them is exactly what would happen. In a few short years, 70 AD, the city would be surrounded, and they would come in, and they would wipe it out, and Temple Mount would be scraped clean. There wouldn't be one stone on top of another. All that gold in the fire would melt and get between the stones, and so people would pull the stones apart to get the gold. And what that meant was there was no temple left, period. So he's telling the people, this is what's going to happen. Watch out. This is going to happen. This is going to be a, an actual reality. And it did happen. So what does it got to do with us then? You remember my theme for Luke is that Luke is telling us how to be better disciples. So all the Gospels record this. This must be really important. But well, how is it important to us? Well, first of all, it's important to the disciples Luke wrote to because nowhere in any of the Gospels does it talk about Jerusalem being destroyed. And yet it happened exactly as Jesus had said. So if they were trying to write this after the fact and say, you know, Jesus was a great prophet, they would say, this is what he said, and look at this is exactly what happened. It hasn't happened yet. That, I think that argues for an early date in the Gospels before the destruction of Jerusalem, because nobody mentions it. <laughs> that would be like talking about the 2000s and never mentioning 9-11. I mean, it was this cataclysmic huge event. You couldn't talk about the history of the 2000s without mentioning the destruction of the Twin Towers. Similar kind of thing. This argues for an early date of this. But what's the, the question then is, what does this have to do with us? How do we apply that, this, this prophecy of this destruction of Jerusalem? Well, I think the core of the issue is, for the Jews, they saw the temple 
as the core identity of their religion. This is who they were as a people. Was this temple representative? It stood in, as a picture of that. That's not necessarily a bad place to be, but it can't be at the core. Because what happened is the, the temple and the identity of the temple and the religious ceremonies of the temple wound up replacing God, who should be at the core of their identity. And how do we know that? Because God himself walks into the temple and gets nothing but grief. God walks into the temple and is told, we're going to have to kill you now. Jesus Christ showed up and they wanted to kill him. They had replaced the person of God at the core of their religious identity with a building. And God will not suffer us to do that. He will not allow us to put anything else. If we're his people, he won't allow us to put anything else at the core of identity except for himself. So let's ask ourselves then, what is it that we might have at the core of our identity? It could be family. It could be power. It could be money. It could be looks. It could be religion. It could be anything that has snuck in there and replaced God at the core of our identity, the core of who we are. So how do you know if something else is snuck in there? How do you diagnose that? Imagine whatever the most important thing to you is and say, what would happen if that was taken away? I can't imagine if my children died or my wife died. Or my family is really important to me. I really love them. What would happen if that was taken away from me? Where would my heart go? If your heart then is, if you're left staring into a void, you go, I have no idea. Then something has moved into the place that God is supposed to be, at the core of your identity. And it, notice it can be religious things. For the Jews, it was the temple. The temple was, God instituted the temple. He told them how to build it. It was a good religious thing. The problem was it had moved from the position it was supposed to occupy to the center. So it's not that these things that could sneak into the center of our identity are bad all the time. They could be very good things, but they just wind up dislocating something that should be central. So for the Jews, what Jesus is asking them, what happens to you if this temple gets wiped out? What if it's gone? How will you identify yourself? Where will you go to? What will you do? And so he's kind of asking us that question too. What is that thing that you can't imagine living without? And what happens if you have to live without it? Because God won't allow his people to have something else in that place. We could suffer that loss. But the good news is that doesn't mean that place is empty. So we'll unpack some of this. I just want you to be thinking about how does the temple play in our lives? And, and the temple as a, as a picture of the core of your religious identity can be a problem. If Trinity Community Church is the core of your religious identity, what happens if Trinity shuts down tomorrow? God forbid. We're not planning on shutting down, by the way. That's, that's not happening. But what would happen if? What would happen if the government came in and said, hey, we're going to tax the daylights out of you, and now we can't afford to operate anymore? Would, would you still have anything at the core of your religious identity if you couldn't meet here on a Sunday morning? I'm hoping that it's Jesus Christ because he won't allow other things to stand there. That's the warning. So that, that's the first thing we have to see is that God will not allow other things in that place. Um, those things can be religious and can be good. And many of the things that wind up taking those places are good. They're not evil things. They just become ultimate and they shouldn't. So that's that picture of that temple. He says there, it's going to be torn down. And so here's how the people react. They say to him, teacher, when will these things happen and, and what would be the sign of these things about to take place? And he said, see to it that you're not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, don't be terrified for these things must first take place. But even then the end is not at once. So what Jesus is talking about, he's, he's, he says, look, these things are going to be attending with, with signs. And, and in this section that he just talked about, he summarized those three periods, the destruction of the temple, the time till he returns, and the time of his return. He kind of brings them all together in that. And the first thing that he says when they say, what, when is it going to happen? What's going to happen? His first words are, don't be deceived. He doesn't say, oh, don't worry about it. You'll know when it happens. What he says, his chief concern with his people is, 
Don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. Don't wander off the path at this point. So what that tells us is, first of all, deception is expected. In this time between Jesus' first and second coming, we can expect deception. It's going to be confusing times. If you, if you heard what Jim read, it's chaos. There's just a mess of stuff going on. So deception in the middle of that is possible. It's to be expected. And if you look at the history of the church, it's happened far too many times. Around 1,000. Boy, that was it. 1,000's got three zeros in it. Therefore, it must be the year of Jesus' return. And he didn't return. In the 1800s, the Millerites thought for sure Jesus is coming back in 1840-something. I don't even remember the exact date. They had it nailed down. People climbed into trees on that night, waiting to be ascended into heaven. They thought if they got in a tree, maybe they'd beat somebody else. Clever salesmen made paper wings and sold them paper wings so that they could ascend into heaven with these wings fluttering behind them. And when it didn't happen, people were shattered. Deception is possible. It's expected in this time period. And I got to admit, when we first moved here, it was 1989, I think there was a prophecy that Jesus was going to return in 1990, if I remember right. And I can remember driving from Edwards, driving up Sierra Highway, and I had the radio on, and it was KVC, the Christian radio, and they mentioned this prophecy. And I was kind of like, ha, well, yeah, that's not going to happen. And then I snuck my head out my window looking at the sky going, well, is it? (laughs) Don't be surprised. People act like it's just shocking when Harold Camping stands up and announces exactly when Jesus is going to return, and then he doesn't. And, And for us as believers, we should look at that and go, yeah, Jesus said so. We knew it was coming. It's going to happen. Deception is expected. So even today, we figure we have learned, right? We have been through this a number of times. Gosh, we got it figured out. Somebody, before you die, is going to stand up again and say, hey, Jesus is going to return on this date. It's going to happen. So deception is to be expected. Deception is possible because he tells them, look out. Be aware. Don't be deceived. It's possible to get caught up in this. It's not only to be expected, but we are susceptible to it, or he wouldn't have warned us. He wouldn't have said, watch out. He would have said, hey, you're going to find this really funny because you won't ever fall for it. So we're susceptible to it. It's possible that we could get drawn into that. And then the, the last point of this is he says, look out and don't be deceived. So deception is avoidable. As these, the next person who pops up with a great set of numbers and, and, and dates and stuff to explain when Jesus is coming back, we can avoid that. We can skip out on being deceived. And the way we can is by paying attention to what he has to say here. Other places in the New Testament too, but I think this is a really good one. He really explains a lot for us. So here's what's going on is is they ask him, what's going to be the sign of this? He says, don't be deceived. And then he explains what the the rest of the time on earth is going to be like. You see, the Jews, some of the Jews, again, I can't say the Jews because there were multiple views within Judaism, but some of the Jews expected the Messiah would come, he would ascend the throne of David, and then he would establish peace throughout the earth. That was what this was going to be. So Jesus is looking towards Jerusalem. He's going to go in, he's going to get crucified, and he's going to rise again. And they may think that we're going to install the Messiah at this point. So from here on out, it's going to be peace. And what he warns them is it's not going to be peace. It's going to be chaos. Nation is going to rise against nation. Uh, Many will come in my name. You'll hear of wars and and tumults. Tumults is is, um, confusion, chaos, broiling, rolling over, that idea. There's going to be just this uh, uh, insurrections and, and craziness. Political insanity is going to happen. So he says, don't worry about those things. That's not the point. Expect that to be the way the life is. That's what it's going to be like. So now he begins to talk about, um, oh, I meant to, I think I moved that. Yeah, that should be moved. Okay, so um, we're talking about then the the fall of Jerusalem. Um, And so he says, he explained to them exactly what's going to happen. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that the desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill what is written. 
Alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. We kind of talked about this in chapter 17. Jesus mentioned this was happening, and they said, where is it going to happen? And now they ask, when is it going to happen? What happened was... On April 14th of 70 AD, in Passover, uh, Caesar Titus surrounded Jerusalem with four Roman legions, which is a lot of troops, and a handful of auxiliaries. There were people from other countries that said, yeah, we'll fight alongside you. There were mercenaries that showed up, said, yeah, hey, there's money to be made here. So he surrounded the city and cut them off, and then they rushed in. It took him only about four months to destroy the city. That's really, really fast in ancient times. Now we would just drop a bomb and be over in a minute. But back then, you had to do it all by hand. So that's what he's talking about. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded like this, flee. If you're, in, if you're in your house or on top of your house or around your house, and you see the armies begin to assemble, don't go inside and pick up anything. Just run for the hills. Literally, run for the hills because the destruction is going to be really swift. If you're out in the field and you see the armies marching towards you, Turn and run. Don't go back home and get anything. Just get out of there. It's going to be fast. Jesus is telling this to his disciples. Those who are not his disciples wouldn't do it. They stood and fought. They thought they could, they could withstand the full fury of Rome, and they couldn't. So he's talking about this time when Jerusalem will be destroyed, and he's looking at his disciples and telling them what they must do when this happens. He anticipated it in their lifetime. He knew it would happen to them, and so he's telling them, beware of this. Um, So what does this have to do with us? Because we are not facing the destruction of Jerusalem. It's already been destroyed. The Gentiles have now put the Dome of the Rock in the middle of the, the, the Temple Mount. So how does this affect us? I think what Jesus is saying for us is not just... Jerusalem's going to be wiped out quick, but he's also warning us again, the temple is going to be taken. What has dislodged God in your life? And whatever it is, you need to deal with it quickly. Don't run home and say, I'm going to get things sorted out first. Deal with whatever that is rapidly because you don't know when destruction is coming. You don't know when judgment's going to fall. So you don't want to say, well... I know I shouldn't have this thing in the place that God's in, but I kind of like it, and it's kind of comfortable, so I'll deal with it in a little bit. The, the sense of urgency needs to permeate our lives as well. Don't coddle whatever it is. And, and the reason we coddle it, the reason we're afraid to let it go, is because we can't imagine life without it. How will I survive if? And so what, what Jesus is warning us here is rapidly, quickly, put in order those things. Don't go back to your house. Don't go in your house and get anything. Flee now. Now is the time. The, 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 um, the judgment comes quickly. So now the next thing he talks about is what will life be like between the fall of Jerusalem and Jesus' return? What will it be like for his followers, for his people? And so this is what he says, starting in verse 10. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines, pestilence. And, these will, and there will be terrors and great signs in the heaven. But before this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my sake. They will, uh, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. So what will this time between Jesus' first and second coming look like? It's not going to be pretty. People will betray you. There'll be earthquakes, there'll be wars, there'll be pestilence and famine. In other words, things are going to continue on. And I think by Jesus talking about this interval, he's indicating to his disciples it's not going to all happen at once. It's not going to be the fall of Jerusalem and then the return of the the Savior. 
He's telling us, he's telling them there will be an interval. And the fact that we could be deceived and the fact that we have to endure seems to indicate this is going to be a long time. Now, I don't think anybody in the first century would have thought it would have been this long. But for the Lord, that's not that long, right? A day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. So he's warning us up front, you're going to have to endure. And what you're going to have to do, endure is not going to be pretty. People will deliver you up. Even your closest friends and relatives will deliver you up and turn you over. And you'll be put in jail, and some of you they're going to kill. This is what the normal Christian life is going to look like. How many people here have that in their daily experience? Yeah, we don't. We are extraordinarily blessed because our Christian life now is abnormal. It, it, it is a, um, a blip in the history of the church that we should live in such freedom and with, with such liberty and such wealth. If you look around the rest of the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ don't always get to live like this. This is not the normal Christian life. Now, I'm not saying forego it and go out and get arrested. What I'm saying is just realize this is a huge blessing that we live in. It's incredible in the history of the church that we should have this much liberty. It, just, it, it is not the normal way that the church has operated. And Lisa's been listening to these Voice of the Martyr podcasts, and some of the stories you hear there are just alarming. It's incredible what these people are enduring in Iraq and Iran, in North Korea. And, and that's what Jesus is talking about. This is what the Christian life is going to be like. For most of the Christians throughout the history of the church, that's what it's been like, is persecution and opposition. And why is that? Why is it that we come with a simple message, just believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved? And why on earth do people get so upset about that? Because what it's doing is it's heading, heading right into that center, that, that religious identity, and saying whatever you have there needs to be pushed out. People don't like that. We don't like that. This week, if you spend some time meditating on that and you find something else is in there, watch how violently you, re you resist dislocating that. Watch how, how firmly you want to hold on to that. So that's why the gospel can be offensive to people, is it's saying, get that idol out and put the true and the living God in. You don't lose by doing that. You only gain. But it, it gets met with huge resistance with those who don't know the Lord yet. And even with us, we can, we can go dragging and kicking and screaming and fingernails screeching on the floor because we don't want to dislodge those idols. They like to stay there. So this is what the, 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 the life is going to be like. So whatever that is that you treasure above everything else, what happens when you lose it? It will hurt. I don't want to stand up here and go, oh, if you have Jesus in your heart, boy, everything's just going to be fine. You can sustain loss of everything. No, you can't. The, the, the scriptures tell us we grieve, but we don't grieve like those without hope. So whatever it is that, that, that's at the center of your life, it will hurt to let it go. It will be difficult to let it go. It may ache for years when you let that go. It's not going to be easy. In our life, as we're honest Christians before an increasingly unbelieving world, don't be surprised when these things are taken from us. I, I think the greatest thing that we have in our country is the way the... Um, Bill of Rights gave us religious freedom. It didn't establish secularism, which said you're allowed to believe whatever you want as long as you keep it to yourself. That would be terrible. What it said was the, the state will not establish religion. The state will stay out of your religion. You, it can be established however you want, and the state will not prohibit free exercise. It's the best way to do it. What happens if that's taken away? What happens if some major court decision upturns that and turns it into secularism, which is you're not allowed to talk about your religion in public? Will you still be a Christian? Will you still be able to follow Christ in that kind of a setting? That's getting actually more in line with, with the normal Christian experience. So this is difficult. How on earth can we face and sustain such huge losses like that? Well, I think right at the center of this section is exactly what we need to know. It starts in verse 13. Jesus says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. This opposition, this war, this, this hardship, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. 
Because what you will show them is they can take everything else away from you. They cannot touch what is at the core of your identity. They cannot take from you the love of God in Jesus Christ. So can you suffer loss? Could they burn your house to the ground? Yeah, you'd be really upset. I would be terrified. But it won't crush me because I have my identity rooted in something else. Can they arrest my family and take them all away? Yes, and it would be terrible. But it won't crush me because I have something more permanent that's the center of my identity. This will be your opportunity to witness. This is how you'll show the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ in the midst of all of these things. And how then will you hold on so that you can bear this witness? Jesus tells us right here, settle it in your mind, therefore, not to meditate beforehand how you will answer. I will give you a mouth and wisdom for which none will be able to withstand or contradict. When you need the grace to stand, when you need the grace to face the loss of all these dear things in your life, at that moment, Jesus says, I promise I will give it to you. I promise I will supply it to you. So when we're faced with this opposition, when we're faced with this, this fierce opposition to everything we believe, in that moment, Jesus says, I promise I will give it to you. I will give you a mouth and wisdom. And he tells us, don't meditate beforehand on how you're going to answer. Don't cook up your own answer to put it together so that it will be really convincing. He's saying, trust me. This is what promises look like. Promises, God says, I'm going to do this miraculous, huge thing for you. Will you trust me? And that's what Jesus is inviting us to do. He's saying, when you need the grace to do that, I will supply it. I will be enough for you in that moment. So now we need to skip ahead to uh, verse 34. I told you I was going to mix it up a little bit. He says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipations and drunkenness and cares of this life, that that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all those things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So what he warns us is, he gives us the promise, I will supply the grace you need to endure the opposition you're going to face. I guarantee you will face it. I promise to supply you with the grace that you'll need. Don't plan beforehand what your answer will be. Trust me, and I'll give it to you. And then he says, watch yourself. Keep an eye on yourself. Check your hearts, because you don't want them to be weighed down. So God gives us this grace to stand in the moment, but he does it through the things that he's given us too. So that's why he says, how do you stand? How do you keep watch yourself? How do you avoid being uh, weighed down with dissipations? How are you prepared for that day when the opposition comes? Pray. Pray. He, he's not saying what God's grace is is unmerited favor and he'll give it to you as long as you don't do anything. What he says is, I'm going to give it to you, period. And here's, here's the ways that you tap into it. Here's how you gain it. It's first of all, you pray. So as we're facing a world that's changing, that, that's moving, it, it's not moving out of a line, it's moving into a line with the way history has always been. Our answer to what's going on is we need to be prayer. We need to be people of prayer. Pray always and then watch yourself. And here's what can happen. You, you can drift away from these things that God's given us to remind you of his promises, to assure you of his promises. You can drift away from reading scripture and memorizing scripture and memorizing these promises. You can drift away from being part of a church family who will encourage you and demonstrate and walk before you how God has been faithful over and over again. You can drift away from the Lord's Supper where he says, this is my body broken for you. You can drift away from those things. You can stop, start forgetting about them. You can forget about prayer. Prayer can become a burden. Or it can become rote where you just bless the food before you scarf it. And when, when those things happen, he says, watch yourself. You need to keep your eye on that because what's going to happen is something is going to replace that in your heart. And you'll be weighed down with dissipations, drunkenness, and cares of life. So those things will sneak in and take the place. Now what happened? Well, Jesus told you, don't let those things occupy the center. And what he's warning us here is they're going to sneak back in. They just are. So watch yourself, folks. That's what he's warning us. And he tells us to pray. 
because we don't want to be caught out at that moment. We don't want to, at the moment when the persecution comes, when the things are taken away, when trouble has arrived in our lives, we don't want to be scrambling to try to fill that hole now. So he's warning us, watch yourselves, walk with me constantly, be in prayer, anticipate the fact that these things are coming. And that way, when it happens, you have ready at hand my promise, and you can be ready to engage exactly as I told you to do. So Jesus understands we're made out of dirt. <laughs> we just drift. Our hearts are constantly drifting. That's why he's given us his word written down, not spoken once. It's so we can go back to it again and again and again and again. That's why he, he tells us pray without ceasing. Is because we need to pray without ceasing. We need to continually come back to God and to remember he's a person. He hears. He understands. He loves me. So that's, a, that's our command is watch out for yourself. Be awake. Pray. And that way you'll have the strength to do this. God will give you the grace you need. But he's also telling you this is how you make yourself ready for that grace. This is how you open yourself to that grace. This is how you walk in that grace. So the next part then, this last section, is Jesus' return. Notice he hasn't talked about his departure in any of this. He hasn't said he's going anywhere. He just suddenly starts talking about when the Son of Man returns. So he just assumes he's already talked about it. People ask, and he said, yeah, look, I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised, and then I'll be gone for a while. So when I return, this is what's going to happen. And so this is how he explains it, starting in verse 25. Let's back up a little bit. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And when they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, now when you see these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. After this period of turmoil, of utter chaos, of opposition of his church, it proceeds across the world anyway. And then there comes a day when there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth. This is one of those things that if anybody ever comes to you and says, Jesus has returned, and he did it in secret, and he did it in this hidden place, this is one of those places where you can look at them and go, I can guarantee you he did not. I can promise you there is absolutely no way Jesus has returned and it escaped my notice. And it's not because Jesus is promising to check in with you first. It's because it won't escape anybody's notice. There will be signs in the sun and the stars and the moon and distress of nations. When Jesus comes back, it won't be in a closet someplace. It won't be hidden. There will be signs in the sky. And in Luke 17, Jesus said, it will be like the flashing of a lightning from one end of the earth to the other. It will be a bright shining of light saying Jesus has returned. You don't miss it. He doesn't return in a closet to two people. <laughs> in Luke, or in uh, First Thessalonians 4.16, it says that the Lord will descend with a cry with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Who's going to miss that? Even if you're sound asleep, you're not going to miss it because it's the voice of an archangel. It's the blast of a trumpet. It's a flash of lightning from one end to the other. And in 2 Corinthians uh, 1.5, it says that he will be revealed with his mighty angels. So when Jesus returns, nobody's going to miss it. So if anybody knocks on your door and says, hey, great news, Jesus returned. I saw him last Tuesday. He, sh he showed up in my bedroom. You can, you can say, no, really, you need to hear what I'm saying. Honestly, he did not do that. It can't be. It cannot be. If that Jesus returned that way, that ain't the Jesus that's going to return the way Jesus said he was going to return. So dump that Jesus and wait for the real one to show up because nobody's going to miss it. It's going to be fantastic. I think, you know, we, we, I think sometimes we, we imagine that day where we'll be all looking up at the sky and smiling. Um, what happened when angels showed up to people in the, in the Bible? The first thing out of the angel's mouth when they showed up to somebody was, don't be afraid. <laughs> I think it's going to be terrifying. But it's going to be terrifying for us in, an, in a way of expectation. It's going to be a light show and, and a, an arrival like we've never seen before. And I think it's going to be startling and arresting.
And at the same time, mixed in there is going to be, oh my gosh, this is for me. This is going to be incredible. He's going to return. He's going to show up in, in this majesty and all of the wrongs that I've suffered so far, everything that I've given up to have him at the center of my being, everything I've had to have him as the core of my religious identity is going to be replaced with something even better. All the wrongs that I've suffered, my brothers and sisters in Christ who've been killed, now he's going to set it right. It's not that we just escape everything. It's even more glorious than that. In the midst of it, Jesus arrives and says, no, now it's time to set things right. And he begins to judge the nations. And he establishes his throne. And he says, now righteousness will reign. There won't be any backhanding politics, slipping of money to the right people to get things done. Now the king will say, no, this is how it's going to be. That's, that's the glory of this. So in the midst of the turmoil, it's only been 2,000 years so far. Might be another two. We don't know. But in the midst of this turmoil, the thing that we're looking forward to is this kind of return, this kind of majesty, this kind of royalty and power coming and saying, now I'm going to set things right. I will judge the nations rightly. And that's how we hope. That's how we put our hope into these things so that we're looking forward to that in anticipation and saying, that's what I'm waiting for. Nobody gets away with nothing. The man who killed somebody and dumped the body and they never found the body and they never found the man, he doesn't get away with it. King Jesus shows up with righteousness and mighty angels and resurrected saints and rules the world. That's how you suffer through the time between the fall of Jerusalem and Jesus' return. That's how we struggle through that, is to know that there still is righteousness, there still is justice, there still is mercy coming. And so we can bear great injustice. Jesus bore great injustice. The most perfect person ever born bore great injustice. And what he's promising us is, you're going to get more of the same if you're my followers. But I'm going to come and make it right. I'm going to come and set things the way they should be. Now, in the midst of this, he says... Now, these things, um, oh, no, I'm sorry, in uh, the, the lesson of the fig tree, this is more of that, that issue of return. He told them a parable, look to the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come into leaf, you see for yourself and know that summer is already near. So I, I have that feeling when you go through winter, especially when we lived in Chicago because it was much more dramatic. You go through this horrific winter where you're freezing and ice storms and everything, and then the snow begins to melt, and the first little green bud you see on a tree and it just brings you hope. You go, oh, I know what that means. And then the next thing you know, it's summer, and you're mowing the lawn, and the trees are, are in bloom, and the, the, it's beautiful, and then you're raking the darn things up. But when you get to the summer part, it's really great, except for the mosquitoes. But it's really great. That, that's just wonderful. And so Jesus is saying, when you look to the tree, you, you have this hope. Spring tells you and promises you summer is coming. You're going to be able to lay in the hammock and, and read in the backyard for a while. You're going to be able to go to the beach and play. Summer is coming. That's that same picture he's telling the, the disciples here. It's, it's for us to have that same thing. Hope. When you see the signs, don't think they're happening immediately. The signs will be going on throughout this period. But every time you see opposition, every time you see these trials, every time you see judgment and, and those things coming on Christians, hope. That's that bud of the tree. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm, I've noticed it. I've seen it. I know it's going to happen. So when you see these things, hear my words. I've promised you these things are going to happen. Summer is coming. The king will arrive, and he will set things right. He says, so also when you see these things take place, know that the kingdom of God is near. Now here's the troubling part. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. So skeptics read this and go, Jesus was a false prophet. Because, yes, he got the fall of Jerusalem right. Did he get his return right? Jesus anticipated his own return within the life of his apostles, and he didn't return, so he must be a false prophet. He said right there, right, this generation won't pass away. So all of that great stuff I just said, I guess we need to forget that, um, go about our merry way. Well, here's how I would answer this. He says, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. All always means all when it says all. It doesn't mean most. It always says all. The question isn't, is all always all? The question is, which all is 
all referring to. Did I make that confusing enough? I should have a whiteboard. <laughs> when you say all, you're referring to a group of something, and in this group, every single thing in that group. That doesn't mean all always means every group possible. So when Jesus says all of these things uh, happen, uh, where'd he go? He says, uh, um, all of these, all, until all has taken place. So within the generation that he's talking to, they will experience all of these things. Um, remember our buddy Tacitus, the Roman historian? When he talked about the fall of Jerusalem, he said something, this is a Roman historian, may be true, may not be true. But this is how he recorded the fall of Jerusalem. Listen to what he said. He said, there had been seen hosts joining battle in the skies, the fiery gleam of arms, the temple illuminated by sudden radiance from the clouds. The doors of the inner shrine were suddenly thrown open and a voice of more than mortal tone was heard to cry out that the gods were departing. At that same instance, there was a mighty stir as of departure. So what Tacitus is saying, even if he's got this wrong, even if he's, he's plumped it up because a lot of his other writing he kind of clearly went overboard on, what he said is, at the fall of Jerusalem, something amazing happened at the temple. There was something in the clouds, something in the sky stirred. And so what could be happening here is when Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man coming in clouds, in the immediate application of it, it could be Jesus returned in the clouds at that point in the form of judgment. Because that's what he said is he was going to judge these people. This people who had replaced him with a temple, this people who had replaced him with a law, he came and judged them. And Jerusalem was trampled until the times of the Gentiles was over. So in a sense, Jesus kind of returned in judgment at that point. That generation saw that. They experienced that. But like all biblical prophecy, and Jesus is, is the prophet par excellence, like all prophecy, it has an immediate application and a huge application later on. So for example, when Isaiah says, the virgin will conceive and be with child, that happened in that time period. That was a, 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 that was a promise to the king that these things were going to happen within a specific period of time. It happened. But what the New Testament tells us is, oh, that wasn't all. That wasn't the fullness of it. That was something that was picturing something even bigger coming. And that bigger thing would be the arrival of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin. And that would be the fuller fulfillment of that picture. So in this sense, it's possible that the destruction of Jerusalem included an aspect of Jesus' judgment that would be echoed in huge at the end, so that that generation experienced all of these things. All these things would be experienced by that particular generation. I think that's the best explanation, because some people try to say this generation means within one generation. And that still won't work, because the fall of Jerusalem and Jesus' return didn't recur in one generation. Even if it's a future generation, it just doesn't work. I think we have to take Jesus at his word there. And so there's, there's probably some aspect at which the fall of Jerusalem was uh, the fall of Jesus' judgment on the Jews for that, for their utter rejection of him. And so let me pull these things back together. If I lost you in the, the all is all is all, let me draw you back in for a second. Here's the thing. What knits all of this together is that idea of having Jesus as the center of our religious identity, the center of who we are. Anything made of dust in that place will to dust return. It can't stand, it can't fit and fill the role that God built into our lives for only himself. So whatever that thing is that's in there, it has to be dislodged. It has to be pushed out. Because only God can fill that. And only God will last for an eternity. And by the way, you are eternal beings. You, you will last for the rest of eternity in one form or another. So you don't want something in there that you're going to have to replace every 10,000 years. That'll get really monotonous after a couple hundred billion years. You want something in that center of who you are that will last beyond you, that will never fade, will never fail. And so that's what Jesus is telling his people. Look to the temple. Watch what happens to the temple. Don't let anything be the temple to you. Even if it's good religious things, let God be the center. So that when these times come, 
You'll have opportunity for witness. You'll be able to stand. And at the end, when Jesus returns, it will be a glorious terror, not a terrifying terror. It will be an amazing hope that you have at his return because you know things will be set right. That's, that's the message of Jesus here when he's talking about this, this destruction of the temple. It would be really easy to lapse it into a history lesson and leave it there. Jesus never teaches that way. He wants us to see it and to embrace it in our lives. So Christians, watch yourself. Our master told us right here, watch yourself. What are you going to do to keep your heart from being weighed down with dissipations and the cares of the world? He doesn't say jet out of the world. He doesn't say go out and hide in the desert. What he says is in the midst of it, in the, in the center of it, as you're going through your life, watch yourself. Pray. 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 And then once you've finished praying, pray. And here's another indication. If prayer is a burden to you, it may be that something else is in the center. I, I, I struggle with it, so I have a feeling I'm about 50-50 there maybe, and I need to kick something else out. But if prayer is a struggle for you, you need to be analyzing what is at the center. That's why the, the means for sustaining is difficult sometimes. So work on that. Keep, keep aware. Watch yourself. Pray and avail yourself of everything that God has given you to give you his grace. His word promises you tremendous things. Hold on to those promises and know that there is a day that nobody will miss. Let's pray. Lord, not only are the things in the center of our identity made out of dirt, so are we. And so, Father, I pray that um, as Jesus has commanded us to watch ourselves, to be on guard, to not be deceived, uh, Lord, I confess that we are all liable to fail to watch ourselves, to drop our guard, and to be deceived. And so, Lord Holy Spirit, would you so fill us that we cannot help but pray and trust and be on guard. Lord, this is a supernatural thing you're calling us to, and we're only capable of so much. So come and fill us with your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.